Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Kortz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. It's great to see you on this Sunday morning. Glad to have you back. If you weren't able to make it last Sunday, I hope your water is working, your electricity is working, and everything that needs to work is working for you now. I hope so. I hope so. You will know, most of you will know that we are in a series uh, that uh, is named after our theme for the year. It actually is helping us to launch our new theme for the year entitled, Go, the World is Watching and are waiting. And so we're, we're looking together at what is effectively the uh, great commission of Jesus to his church and all that fulfilling that great commission actually involves and includes. So today I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, which is found on page uh, 822 of the worship Bibles provided for you either underneath the chair in front of you or underneath your chair if you are seated on a front row. Uh, seated on our front row, page 822. Today we're going to spend some time here, and uh, we're going to spend some time in a passage that is uh, or represents a climactic event in the life of Jesus, and also at the same time a life-changing, destiny-altering event in the lives of His disciples. After three years of watching him, three years of watching his miracles, hearing his teaching and his preaching, Jesus asked his disciples who they believe he is. It's what I like to call the original come to Jesus moment. You ever had a come to Jesus moment? This is the original. And after he asks this question, he unpacks for his disciples what that means, what he came to do, why he came to do it. And and so it introduces to the disciples a, a fuller view of what we know as the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So with our Bibles open, we want to take a moment to look at Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. And the scripture says now... When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time forward, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Today I want to talk to you about the gospel as the one thing that followers of Jesus must be absolutely clear on for themselves as well as for those around them. The reason is uh, the cause, or, or the reason this is so, is because of, of what uh, Paul points out, for example, in his letter to the Romans. The reason why this is so critical is contained here. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, Paul says. Paul says, I have complete confidence in the gospel because of what God uses it to do. God uses the gospel to save, to, to free people from their sin, to free them from the consequence of their sin, the power of their sin, and to restore them to a living relationship with himself. The way this powerful gospel works, Paul says, is he, it shows how God puts people, watch now, trapped in their sin in a right relationship with him. The gospel does not show us how we can put ourselves in a right relationship with God, but rather how God has worked to put us in a right relationship with him. God has done everything necessary for sinners to be rescued and to be restored. All that remains, the gospel says, is for folks to understand the gospel and then to respond by faith, trusting in and fully relying on what God has done in Christ. The good news in Jesus could begin to be summarized in this way. Anyone, according to the Apostle Paul, anyone who believes in Jesus can be saved. Anyone, anyone. But the gospel goes on to affirm only those who truly believe in Jesus will be saved. Anyone who believes in Jesus can be saved. Only those who truly believe in Jesus will be saved. And when they do believe, Paul is saying in Romans 1, when they do believe, then their time here is radically changed and their destiny is radically altered. They are changed. They're given eternal life. And that is why we have to be absolutely clear when it comes to the gospel. It means believers have to be absolutely clear for themselves, for their families, and for others. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Now, it's very easy to assume that we understand all this. In fact, I'm imagining that a lot of you, if you're a follower of Jesus right now, you're going, yeah, I know all that. I know all that. I've got a firm grasp on that. I know all that. But I, 
My experience has been that there are a lot of followers of Jesus who will say, yeah, I know that, yeah, I know that, yeah, I know that. But when they're asked to share what the gospel is, they can't do it. And one of the things I've learned about myself, I don't know if you know this about yourself yet, but if I think I know something and I can't say what I think I know, if I can't repeat what I think I know, then in reality, I really what? Don't know it. I really don't know it. I think I know it. I've heard it so many times before that it's common to me, and I expect it, but I can't repeat it. Now, what this means is that when you ask many, many followers of Jesus what a person must do in order to be saved... You, you get a lot of spiritual cliché. They don't really know what the gospel is. They can't repeat it. They can't articulate it. And consequently, when it comes to how a person must be saved, they, they'll come up with, with things that they've heard or things that they remember from their past. They'll say things like, you've got to invite Jesus into your heart, which to a person who's never been in church makes no sense. You've got to give your life to Jesus. You've got to love Jesus and live for him. You, you've got to choose to follow him. You, you've got to be sorry for your sins and believe that he died for you. You've got to go to church. You, you've got to believe the Bible. You, you've got to pray a special prayer and be baptized. Lots of different answers like that. There's truth in a lot of those answers, and there's some outright falsehood in a lot of those answers as well. But none of them are the gospel that has the power to save in and of themselves. Surveys, some surveys that were taken of people who have prayed the prayer to receive Christ in the United States. Some surveys show that 50% of the people who have prayed the prayer to receive Christ don't live lives that reflect the life of a follower of Jesus. Their lives are every bit as much like those who never prayed the prayer. And what that means is something, something is very, very wrong. The power of the gospel is missing, which leads us either to one or, 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 or of two conclusions. Either A, when they prayed that prayer, they were leaning into a gospel that is not the gospel not the whole gospel, or secondly, they heard the real gospel, but it wasn't accompanied, their response was not accompanied with a wholehearted faith and a full understanding of the gospel they just heard. So they prayed a prayer, they believe they're saved. You don't want to go to hell, do you? Pray a prayer. You want to be with grandma when you die, don't you? Pray this prayer. You want to be like everybody else in the youth group, pray this prayer. It's VBS. All the other kids are, are raising their hands. Raise your hand. Pray that prayer. You want to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, don't you? <laughs> you want God to bless you, don't you? Pray this prayer. None of those, none of those are the gospel with the power to save. So, 
the New Testament, for reason, a good reason, speaks of false gospels. Gospels that are different, gospels that are distorted, gospels that are contrary to the true gospel that saves. And so today we want to ask, and uh, next Sunday we want to ask this as well, what is the real gospel? What is the good news that comes with power to save? Now, in the same way that Jesus wants his disciples to be absolutely clear on the gospel, and why it is good news, because he's counting on them to share it, so must we also be if we're followers of Jesus. We've got to be especially clear on those uh, issues that make up the very heart of the gospel of Jesus, and there are four of them that we find represented in our passage. We see the identity of Jesus, the objective of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and then finally, the purpose of Jesus, all unpacked for us in terms of good news. Who he is, what he's aiming for, what he's called to do, and why. Confusion in these areas keeps us from understanding and putting our faith in the true gospel. Now, I want us to look today at the first two, the identity of Jesus and the objective of Jesus, and uh, Lord willing, we'll look at the next two this next Sunday, the mission of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus. Let's look first of all at the identity of Jesus, and we find that being unpacked for us in verses 13 through 20. Let's look at that one more time. The Scripture says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I want you to see what Jesus is doing here. He's actually doing an unexpected thing. He's never asked this question before. He's traveling. He's, he's leaving uh, Jerusalem and that area to get away from the religious leaders who are putting incredible pressure on him. He's gone to a safe place where there are a lot of Gentiles. He needs to ask this question. He's wanting to gauge where these disciples are. And in order to do that, he asked them these two questions. Who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? Both of these questions are important, but they're important for different reasons. The first question is important because it contains a clear description of who Jesus thinks that he is. Do you see it? He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Key phrase, Son of Man. Son of man, son of man. Jesus was saying a lot in a very few words. This is one of Jesus' favorite self-descriptions, son of man. To understand it, you've got to understand that in the Old Testament, the, the, the name, the title, the phrase son of man was used in two very different ways. First, it was used to simply describe mere human beings as opposed to God. Uh, everyone on the planet is a son of man, born of a man, born of a woman. We're all son of men, daughters of men. That's who we are. There's another use of that same phrase. We find it in Daniel, and it refers to a person who is both divine and human. 
It refers to a person who is greater than any mere human, who comes on the cloud symbolizing that he comes with great authority to save and to rule. The Son of Man is a, a Savior King. He is one who's going to be given dominion and glory and given the entire world to rule. So this means that in Jesus' day, when he would use Son of Man to describe himself, he was actually asking these questions without asking these questions. When he would be teaching and call himself the Son of Man, he was saying to people in a way, pushing people in a way, uh, uh, nudging them in a way to say, now, who, who do you think I am? Am I a mere Son of Man? Or am I the Son of Man found in Daniel, the, the Son of Man that Daniel saw in a vision, God and man, a coming ruler now, it's pretty obvious from the answers that the disciples give that the uh, people, as a rule, were very positive about Jesus, but they only saw him as the son of man of the first kind. Oh, he, he was a great teacher, and he, he could be a prophet, maybe Elijah raised from the dead, but he was still just a mere man. Then we come to that come-to-Jesus moment where he says, okay, Okay, but now let me ask you, who do you say that I am? It's interesting, if you look on further in the book of Matthew, you find there is a point at which Jesus acknowledges that the Son of Man that He is, is Daniel's Son of Man. And he acknowledges that before the, the rulers, and immediately they charge Him with blasphemy for claiming to be God. Jesus knows who he is. The people don't know who he is. The question now is, do these disciples know who Jesus is? That's the issue. Now, Peter is their recognized leader. We always think of Peter as being impetuous and pushy and all that, but he really was the leader of the disciples, and so Jesus poses this question to all the disciples, and Peter steps forward, not because he's pushy, but because he's the leader. And he steps forward, and he says, this is the conclusion we've all come to. You are the Christ, the Savior King, the Son of the living God. They finally say it out loud. No doubt they've talked about it. No doubt they've, they've wrestled it through. But finally, finally, finally they say it. They speak those words. It has incredible implications for them. They know that. They finally, finally say it. The only problem is, as we're going to find next week, they got the implications wrong. They got the implications wrong. But I'll save that. Jesus affirms Peter. Peter takes a stand. The disciples take a stand. But Peter, in particular, takes a stand. And he says, we know and we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he's saying as well, I know and I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus immediately affirms Peter in this. And you notice what he says. He says, Peter, this didn't come from you. This is, this is a God-given gift. God has given you faith and the capacity to see me as I really am. Who do others say that I am? Who do you say that I am? 
two of the most important questions in all the New Testament. I read a, a story the other day about a, um, about a, a shopping center in London a couple of years ago that uh, did a multi-choice, multi-answer survey among the people who were shopping, and they, they applied this survey in particular to children. And they asked children, one of their questions was, who is Jesus Christ? And the four possible answers they gave to the children was a Chelsea footballer from the Premier League, a soccer player, son of God, a TV personality. I'm trying to remember the fourth one. I can't remember if it was some personality. They surveyed like a thousand kids. 20% of them said they believed that Jesus was a footballer for the Chelsea Premier League. That's who Jesus is. A lot of adults have some very interesting, similar perceptions of Jesus. He's a wise prophet. He's a good teacher. He's a godly man. He's, he's an example of love to live by. He's a spiritual guide or he's a legendary holy man. What Jesus is saying here is something very critical, and I don't want you to miss it. Jesus shows us here that knowing who he is and acknowledging who he is is where, watch now, the salvation that he offers actually begins. One never got saved believing Jesus was a good example. No one ever got saved believing he was a holy man. Nobody ever was saved believing that he's just a mere man, the son of man of the first kind. What that means is we've got to be sure that when we're placing our faith in Jesus for salvation or when we're inviting others to do so, we're actually putting our faith in the Jesus who is really Jesus. We've got to be sure that when we're sharing our faith with someone else that the Jesus that we're presenting to them and that they're hearing about is the Jesus of the New Testament. In the same way that there are a lot of false gospels, it's important for me to say to you there are a lot of false Jesuses out there. There are a lot of people in our nation today who say they are followers of Jesus, but the Jesus that they're following is essentially a good man and a good example of love. And when they say they're following him, they're following his example of love. That when he died on the cross, he was demonstrating pure love. There was nothing else about the cross to be considered but love, not the holiness of God, the concern of God for sin, none of that, just love. Jesus came to be a stellar example of love. Listen to some uh, very well-known speakers uh, who write best-selling books. And if you listen closely, what you hear them saying is that Jesus is your spiritual life coach. Jesus is the best wealth advisor you can ever find. Trust him, and you'll become wealthy. Trust him, and he will make your life a success. There are a lot of Jesuses out there. There is one we find in the New Testament, and it's so very important that, first of all, for ourselves, that we're clear on which Jesus we have put our faith in. 
It can't be the Jesus that helps our family. It can't be the Jesus that's going to heal our marriage. And I always have to rush to say this. Yes, Jesus can help your family, and yes, Jesus can heal your marriage. I'm not saying he can't, but I'm saying that's not his primary point, and he's not a marriage counselor. Has he got good counsel on marriage? Absolutely, but he's more. He's so much more than that. So if you're a follower of Jesus, let me ask you a question. When you put your faith in Jesus, who was the Jesus you put your faith in? Okay, now, hang on. One of these days I'm going to have the seats installed with seatbelts. We haven't done that yet. We've got a few other things we've got to do. But hang on anyway. Your Jesus can't be the Jesus Grandma loved. If you believe in the Jesus that you think Grandma loved, it's very, very likely you can be missing the real Jesus. You've got a picture of the Jesus your grandma loved in your head. The question is, does it fit the reality of this book? Who is the Jesus you placed your faith in is the primary and first question to ask. He is not a magical life coach. He is not a supernatural success advisor. Not a personal counselor and encourager helping us to reach our greatest potential. But what he is is the Messiah, God's Savior King, the Son of the living God come to save and come to rule. Now one of the surest ways that you can know whether you've placed your faith in the real Jesus is in the change that the real Jesus brings to real life. If he is truly to us God's son, God's savior king, come, then, then what's going to happen is we are going to assume a different posture as we live our lives. We're going to assume the posture of submission to Christ. We're going to live our lives yielding to Christ. We're going to live our lives anticipating his return. We're going to live our lives submitting to the one who died on the cross for sinners. We're also going to be living in anticipation, submitted uh, anticipation of the one who is coming again to rule and to reign. So one of the best tests is, To, to ascertain, to know whether I put my faith in the Jesus of the New Testament or some other version of Jesus is to pause and look at my life and particularly, watch now, not only hear what my lips say, Jesus is Lord, I trust Him, but also to see what my life says. Now, granted, 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 uh, your pastor's not perfect. I don't have a perfect Christian life. You will never have a perfect Christian life until Jesus comes again. I understand that. So I'm not saying look for perfection, but I am saying this. If you genuinely belong to Jesus, there will be in your life 
Sometimes a nagging, sometimes a joyous. Did you catch the nagging part? Sometimes a nagging, sometimes a joyous pursuit of purity and holiness for his sake. I love him so much, I want to give him a life that pleases him. I want to give him a life that looks like him. Does that make sense? Sometimes it's nagging. Sometimes it's joyous. Guess when it's nagging. Does anybody want to guess when it's nagging? It's when I'm not living for him that it's nagging. But the New Testament says, Hebrews says, even that's an evidence that you belong to him. If you aren't living a holy life and it nags at you, it's a pretty good sign. You belong to him and you're in trouble. But you're, you belong to him. <laughs> Because the Scripture says he disciplines those that he loves and that belong to him. So if you're being nagged right now, so what this means is also that one of the best places for us, understanding the importance of the identity of, of Christ, um, because this is so important for us, when we're praying as believers for followers of, uh, for, for folks who don't know him, when we're praying for those who are near us that we know are thirsty and need Christ and need that living water that only he can give, that when we're praying for them, what this means is that we need to be praying that the Father will do for them what the Father did for Peter and ultimately, if we're genuinely born again, what the Father did for us. And what was it that the Father did for Peter? And what was it that the Father did for us? He gave Peter and he gave us eyes to see Jesus as he really is. He moved us from seeing Jesus as a mere man, good teacher, prophet, financial advisor, life coach, to seeing him as the Son of God, the Messiah, Savior of the world, King of kings. So when we're praying, we ought to be praying, Lord, open up their eyes. Let, let them see. Let them see. Now, since God's put us near them, then there are a couple of questions that uh, we need to always be asking ourselves as well. What do my words say to them that Jesus is? And what does my life say to them that Jesus is? What do my words say to them that Jesus is? And what does my life say to them that Jesus is? It's easy for us to sing about who Jesus is and to say we believe in this room. But I wonder, what is it that we say about Jesus in that room that represents the place where we work, in that building that represents the place where we go to school? What, what do we say about Jesus there? Do we say anything at all? You know, it's an interesting thing. If you knew I was married, and I am, and you knew me really, really well, and I never talked about my wife, what would you think about my marriage? What would you think about my wife? Eh, she's just an ordinary woman. There's nothing special about her. He never mentions her. Isn't that what you would think? 
If I never talked about my kids or I never talked about my grandkids, then it would seem as if I had my values placed somewhere else, wouldn't it? Because whatever I talk a lot about outside of work is typically what I really, really love and value. Are you seeing where I'm going? How much do the people who are right around you, the people who are near you, coworkers, neighbors, close friends, family, how much do they hear of Jesus from you? How much do your words actually point them to the Jesus that really is? And then there's a second question that is pretty difficult as well. What does your life say to them about who Jesus is? Do they see you with your life making sacrifice for him because he's so valuable? Do, you, do they see you with your life wholeheartedly devoted to him? Do they recognize there are some things you don't do that they do, not because you're better than they are, but because you belong to Christ? Remember, to reach them, you not only need to know that they're thirsty for life, you not only need to know where they're thirsty for life, but you need to know what they think of Jesus, the one who has the living water they're looking for. Now, that's not all there is. There's something else that we need to be clear on when it comes to the gospel, and that is the objective of Jesus. Look with me at verses 17 through 20. And Jesus answered Peter after he made this incredible confession, and he said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You didn't figure this out, Peter. The Father showed this to you, which is why I said when you've got a friend that you know needs Christ, one of the first things you need to begin doing is praying that God will give them eyes to see. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, the gates of death. And I will give you the keys of, of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. Why? Because he knew son of man A and son of man B, and Son of Man A was what everyone believes. Son of Man B was what he was. And it wasn't time for him to go to the cross yet. So he says, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Look at the objective of Jesus here. This is important. He, Jesus is responding to Peter here and to his great confession of faith. He affirms Peter in that confession of faith. And he explains why this confession matters for Peter, for the church, for the world. He says that Peter and this faith in him is going to be the foundation upon which he builds his church. We, we could also say it's the very center of what makes a church a church. By the way, what makes a church a church is not a pastor. It is not a certain kind of music. It, it, it isn't a, a, a building with chairs arranged like this. That isn't what makes a church a church. What makes a church a church is a group of people who have made this very faith commitment to Jesus Christ. They share a faith commitment with the Jesus who is. That is what we share at Center Grove. 
one of the things I love about our church is just the, the, the life that, that uh, comes from this fellowship that people experience and comment on. And, and it's nothing that I've done and it's nothing that any of you have done, but the life that is experienced, the, the vibrance and the commitment to Christ all comes from this shared faith in Jesus, this belief, this, this conviction that he is God's Savior King. He is the Son of God come to save and come to rule. And our posture is that we bow. We are a bowing church. And I pray we will stay a bowing church. It's when you bow that you experience the life that Jesus gives. Now, I want you to notice something here, though. If, if, if this is the foundation, Jesus isn't quite done. He, says, he goes on and he says, with this foundation, you're going to be a people that even death can't defeat. The gates of, of hell will not prevail against it. And with this kind of faith, like Peter has... He says, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to gather people to myself, people with faith in me and, and who will in turn reach out and reach other people and bring them to faith in me and into this new life that only I can give. So this is what Jesus means when he says, I'm giving to you, Peter, and I'm giving to others the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he, he's going to give them the God-given means to open the gates to new life and open the gates to God's acceptance and open the gates to God's forgiveness to those who will receive it forever. The keys to the kingdom are the truths of the gospel, and they are the means by which Jesus intends to gather together a group of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who will belong to him. And with these keys comes the, the authority to bind and loose, Jesus says, to bring people, watch now, to a point of decision when it comes to the gospel where they choose either to find forgiveness in Christ or they choose to be left separated from God and under the condemnation that we're all under apart from Christ. We have an authority. So, to the question, what is the real gospel, the good news that comes with power to save? Our first answer is this. God's Savior King came to do what humanity cannot, rescue and restore ourselves to Him. God's Savior King came to do what we can not. I want you to understand very clearly the gospel is that God doesn't first ask people to behave. The gospel is that God asks people first to believe. The gospel is not that God first asks people to behave. The gospel is that God first asks people to believe. Many of you were raised in a context where salvation 
may not have been explicitly stated as a matter of doing, but the implications were everywhere. That in order to be saved, you have to live a certain way, which is very different from saying, if you are saved, you will live a different way. Not perfectly, but you will be different. He didn't come saying, if you don't straighten out your life, I'm, I'm not going to save you. He didn't say to Matthew, the tax collector, you're going to have to give up all your extortion and everything before I'll even talk to you. He certainly didn't ask me to clean up my act because here's the deal. Here's the, here's the reality. Without Christ, I couldn't. I could not stop. I don't have the power in me to defeat the sin that is so attractive to me. And the truth is, neither do you, unless God gets involved. And see, it's when we believe that our hearts and our minds are transformed, and when our belief transforms our hearts and our minds, then our behavior follows. So the gospel reminds us of the bad news that our efforts to produce right behavior always fall short of God's perfect standard. None of us can save ourselves by our own good works, but the work we needed to do that we could not do, God and His Son has already done. So what does this mean for you and for me? Well, it means if you're a follower of Christ, it means being clear on Jesus' identity and his objective as God's Savior King. And that's absolutely necessary for you and for me uh, to be sure we have a relationship with him. It means that when we're dealing with other people, that we make sure that they understand who Jesus really is and that he comes for all kinds of people. Being clear on his identity reminds believers, reminds you and me of something very critical and something that, is, uh, that cuts at the root of a false faith. Jesus' identity and his objective cuts at the root of a very common expression of Christianity in the United States, and that is that Christianity is really about Jesus and me. Jesus and me. It lets me swap and rotate churches at the drop of a hat because it's just about Jesus and me, Jesus and my family. Now, I understand that there are some times when you need to change churches. I get that. I understand that. I'm not being critical of that, but I'm saying there are some people who, who are in one church for a couple of weeks. They're in another church for a couple of weeks. They, they attend more churches than there are uh, conceivable, but it's because they have a Jesus and me mentality. My, my faith is just about me. When you understand that Jesus' objective, listen, Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, he died for you, no question. But he didn't just come for you. He died for you, but he came for all kinds of people. And here's the bottom line. If Jesus came, for more than me, and I belong to him, 
then it's imperative that I learn to live for more than me. I can't live just for me if my life is given to the Jesus who really is. Being faithful to the gospel, to the identity of Jesus and to the objective of Jesus means something else for those of us who are followers of Christ. It means that there are going to be people in our lives who don't understand that what we call good news is good news. Last week, we uh, put a, uh, a post, we posted uh, one of my uh, quotes from my sermon from last week on Facebook, on my public page. And this is what we posted. God's not sending you to find the perfect. He's not sending you to condemn the messed up. He's sending you to find the thirsty and give them the only thing that will satisfy them himself. God's not sending you to find the perfect. He's not sending you to condemn the messed up. He's sending you to find the thirsty and give them the only thing that will satisfy them himself. Facebook notified us a couple of days after we posted that to let us know that it had been flagged as a negative post. And consequently, they were not going to allow us to promote it the way we wanted to promote it. So I went back and I read it a ninth time and I said, but then it occurred to me that I should expect that. Because what we call good news, not everyone is going to see as good news. Do you see how offensive this is? To, to acknowledge that there are some who are messed up. But they need to know this guy right here, he's messed up. But the idea that God is sending us to find the thirsty and give them himself is offensive because it says you need God. And to those who say, I don't need God, that's for weak people. That's for people who believe in fairy tales. That's offensive. So it's negative. That, that's okay. There are going to be some people in our, in, who are near us who will not see the good news as good. But I want to remind you, there are people who are near us who will see the good news as good and who are just waiting, thirsty for someone to tell them, hey, listen, if you're on Facebook, would you do me a favor? Would you go to my Facebook page? Would you find that post? Would you like it and would you share it? Would you do that? Well, if you've already done it, you can't do it again, but don't undo it. But would you do that? I'd like to just say to Facebook, there are other people who think it's actually positive. <laughs> if you're the one who posted it as negative, um, I love you. <laughs> and I'm here for you. And I mean it. It's okay. Just help me understand what was negative. Well, 
I want you to, uh, to see, though, that despite criticism and misunderstanding, believers have to be full of love, and they have to be full of boldness and courage. They've got to remember that the church and individual members all have been given a heavenly authority and a heavenly responsibility to take the gospel to others and to live the gospel before others so that others might have the opportunity to know the Jesus we've come to know, to find the healing we've come to, to find, to possess the joy and the peace that we've come to possess and enjoy. We want to challenge and encourage to persuade people to put their wholehearted faith and trust in Christ out of love for them. That's our calling and that's our authority, whether it's understood or not. But before I end, there's some of you who, when, when I said this, it, it grasped your attention that anyone who believes in Jesus can be saved, that only those who truly believe in Jesus will be saved. Some of you landed right here and you thought he could never, he, he would never save me because of the things that I've done. And, and I just want to say to you, that is such a lie. The, uh, the truth is that this Savior King, whom Daniel saw as coming on clouds of glory with incredible power, the power of his pure life, the power of his death is more than enough to overcome all of your sin and all of your failures and all of the things that you are today so embarrassed about. Don't let your past keep you from coming into God's new future in Christ. The reason he came to give you new life, cancel your past, and open a new door to an extraordinary future with Him. Some of you landed right here. Only those who truly believe in Jesus will be saved. And, and the question that is there in the back of your mind is, have I truly believed? Have I truly believed? You raised your hand in VBS. You walked forward with other teenagers after camp. Um, your dad told you it was time, and you knelt down by the bed at 12, and you prayed a prayer because your dad said it was time. Have you truly believed? Have you put your faith in the Jesus who is, trusting that this one who lived that perfect life we should have lived and died the death we deserved to die. That one who was raised with power so that those who belong to him might themselves be raised to life. This one, this Jesus, offers to you a new life. He's won it. He's done it. There's nothing else you need to do except bow to the truth of who he is and the truth of what he's done. Will you stand to your feet all across the room, all across the room? I'm going to ask the uh, praise team to come out. We've got a... Uh,
We've got a song for our closing that I want us to sing together. You probably don't know it, but it fits so well, I just thought I'd risk it. Uh, I think you'll catch on pretty quickly, but it is so powerful. I want to make an appeal to every follower of Jesus to hear this question afresh. Who do you say that I am? With your words, with your deeds, where you work, where you play, where you study, where you attend class, where you shop. What do your words say? What does your life say? Hear Jesus ask you, who do you say that I am? Somebody near you needs you to point them to the Jesus that is, the Jesus that saves so they can begin to understand the gospel that has the power of God for salvation. Praying that we'll feel the urgency of eternity. Perhaps today, understanding who Jesus is and why he's come, you would come. And today, bow and give your life to him. You're not going to depend on a baptism when you were five years old and didn't know what you're doing. You're not going to depend on a raised hand and a quick prayer said because somebody told you you needed to pray it or because you were afraid of hell. That is not the gospel. But today you would bow and surrender your life to him who lived that perfect life, died. That substitutionary death has been raised with power so that you might live. That Messiah, that Savior King, Son of God. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come and line up here. We'd be grateful to be able to help you bow to the gospel of Jesus. And today, if you're a follower of Jesus and you would make a fresh commitment to let your words and your life point others to the real Jesus. I encourage you to do that right where you are as together we sing this song of response. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kors. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.